I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Kaitel. I'm joined virtually here in LA, as always, by my co-host Joe from back in our hometown of London. And then we do, of course, have another special guest for today's podcast. He's the former chief football reporter for Sky Sports News, a network that he represented for a quarter of a century. Still broadcasting these days, he freelances for Premier League Productions and has also recently authored two books, both about the beautiful game. We welcome Nick Collins to the United Mates Football Podcast. Nick, thank you very much for being our guest. It's a real pleasure to have you with us on the pod. And how are you doing this evening? Yeah, look, thank you. Uh, really looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, uh, it should be good. It should be good. Fire away with those questions. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll bring him on. Real quick, I'm going to bring Joe in. We are very much both, yeah, looking forward to having this conversation with you. But Joe, we're recording, obviously, just before Arsenal take on Patrick Vieira's Crystal Palace. No doubt that's the, the Monday night football game back in England on Sky Sports. And of course, uh, yesterday Spurs got the win over uh, Newcastle in what was, I believe, Steve Bruce's thousandth game in management. This is actually our 99th podcast, would you believe it? So we've got a bit of catching up to do when it comes to Brucey. But Joe, cheers for sticking it out with me so far. And how have you been, mate? Yeah, I've been good, thanks. And yeah, it was nice. Spurs got the win and absolutely, well, it was a very dramatic day for all sorts of reasons yesterday. But yeah, glad Tottenham um, got the win. And yeah, obviously hoping Arsenal lose a bit later as well. But um but Nick, um, as Kai said, obviously, we're delighted to have you with us on the podcast. And when we have a guest on the podcast, we always start by asking an icebreaker question. So we have, have, of course, got one for you. And as Kai was mentioning earlier, you have written a couple of books. And only a year or so ago, um, Foot Soldiers was published, um, which is actually quite a historical rollercoaster of a story that you tell in Foot Soldiers. But for today's icebreaker, we just want to focus on the title itself. So you're going to have to bear with us here. But the question will be, we want to build the strongest soldier possible. It's in a kind of football perspective. So we want to see, basically, if you were building the strongest foot soldier, which footballer's left foot and which footballer's right foot would you add? We'll give you some time to think about it. I'll start with mine first. I think from a left foot, it would have to be Laurent Robert from Newcastle. I mean, that left foot was pretty amazing. And then... I'll throw Belletti in there, the Barcelona and Chelsea fullback for the right foot. He, he scored a few good goals. But Kai, before we get to Nick, who would you um, would you go for? Immediately for the left foot, I thought of uh, John Arnarisa uh, and those sort of long-range free kicks and goals that he would score. And in particular, I think he even managed to break Alan Smith's leg with a free kick once. Um, so that just shows you how hard he could kick a ball. Otherwise, right-footed player-wise, I can't look past uh, Stephen Reid, who scored that absolute thunderbolt oh, yeah. of a goal. <laughs> Um, against Wigan at the JJV type of like goal where if, if the net had had broken it probably would have injured someone in the crowd is how hard he kicked it but um, Nick what about you if you're having to put together two powerful left foot and a right foot from footballers who are you picking? Well if I could choose a left foot I would choose Lionel Messi I'm afraid um, but for a right foot I'd go for someone like Steven Gerrard I think I always remember that shot that uh, saved Liverpool in the 2006 FA Cup final down in Cardiff um, last minute dramatic 30 yarder to to make it uh, three apiece uh, so maybe I'd, I'd, I'd go for those two if I'm allowed Lionel Messi. Yeah, we'll we'll let you take that. And I can definitely, you're bringing back memories now of that FA Cup final. I think Dean Ashton got on the score sheet, maybe Jamie Carragher scored an own goal. And then, yeah, we can all see probably in our in our minds right now, is it Gerard slamming one past Shaka Hislop to, to take it to penalties eventually. Um, but now that we've gotten that icebreaker out of the way, it's, it's, it's time for the question that we really like to properly kick things off with by asking all of our guests. It's sort of the question when it comes to getting a sense of our guests' football heritage, as Mourinho would probably put it. So we're taking things back to your childhood, Nick, and the question that I have for you is, 
what is your football origin story, so to speak? Sort of what was your gateway into football and why did it become an obsession of yours? Well, I'd always wanted to be a, a sports journalist, but from the age of about 12 or 13. I mean, look, given my age, I'm 64. I was nine years old when the World Cup was on in England, and that's obviously what fired my uh, interest, inspiration and lifelong love of this game. Um, I remember staying up to watch every single match, and it was just extraordinary. Um, I couldn't face extra time. At one stage, I had to leave the room and go upstairs to my bedroom because it was too tense. And I was actually slamming a table tennis bat against a wall to try and pass the time. When my dad shouted up, England have scored, it's 3-2. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. <laughs> and so I came running downstairs and I actually missed the live Jeff Hurst uh, third goal. But I did stay after that and managed to see it through to the end. So obviously that got me going in, in, in football. Um, I did actually, as a very young boy, start su to support Chelsea, but I have to say here, this, this wasn't a very good way of going about it, because when they lost the 1966 semi-final to Sheffield Wednesday, I gave up supporting them. Uh, I've been a Gillingham supporter for the last 35, 40 years, um, and it's more downs than up, but it's great fun. I've got a season ticket, my kids do as well, um, and uh, we're fifth from bottom at the moment in League One. So it's 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 a bit of a struggle. But yeah, um, that's that's my footballing passions, if you like. But yeah, I always wanted to be a sports journalist. The route for me at the time was through university. I went to Bristol. I read history. I struggled for a few months to get a job in journalism, eventually broke through on the Aldershot News. Um, I applied for the sports deputy sports editor's job there. In fact, that had already been filled, but they did give me a, um, a job uh, as a general news reporter. And that's how it started. I, I then got to be the uh, deputy sports editor at the Aldershot News, followed that up with local radio, then regional television with TBS, and then into the uh, satellite age with, uh, first of all, British satellite broadcasting, and then in 1991 uh, to, to Sky, to Sky Sports. Um, so that's, that's how I got there in the end. Wow, well, that's uh, certainly a, a fantastic journey you've been on. It's interesting as well, you said, Nick, that sounds like from about the age of 12, 13 was when you realised um, that sort of sports journalism was something you wanted to pursue. So was there, um, was there a particular journalist or broadcaster that kind of inspired you to want to take that route? And if so, who was it? Well, yeah, that's a good question, Joel. And there, and there was uh, initially... It was a guy called Ian Waldridge who used to write for the Daily Mail. Um, I thought he was a superb writer. I loved the idea of traveling around the world, going to see all sorts of different sports events and then analyzing and, and, and commenting on them. Um, and so that's, that's what sparked it. Um, but gradually, after some time in newspapers, I was given an opportunity to start broadcasting um, from the Aldershot press box while I was working for the Aldershot News. My, my debut was on BBC Radio Sheffield. Um, it must have been about 1983 when Sheffield United were storming through Division 4 on their way to the title. I think it was their one and only season in the bottom tier. Um, I did a broadcast that day and I was hooked and wanted to keep doing it. And it, it just gradually evolved from there. So from wanting to be a sports writer, I then wanted to be a sports broadcaster. OK, yeah. So there was, there was the two separate things going on. I guess... Um... You sort of mentioned, obviously, before you were at Sky, you were you had a sort of another role within broadcasting as well. But we just want to go into, well, going to Sky Sports a bit, and really, really interested to find out what it was like being at Sky Sports. I guess right at the beginning of this era of the Premier League, it sounds like maybe even potentially a, a tiny bit beforehand. And I mean, look, it's obviously been an absolutely incredible success. But back when you started working. At Sky Sports, did you ever imagine, you know, fast forward to 2021 that the Premier League would be what it's like today? Uh, no, it's fair to say you didn't. Back in those early days, um, yeah, I was there for the season prior to uh, the Premier League contract being landed. Um, and when when we got the contract, it, there was almost a, a feeling of shock. What on earth do we do now? Um, and we certainly had to hit the ground running. Um, it again an old cliche but it was all hands to the pump yes I was a, a pitch side reporter but you were you were doing all sorts of of everything you you just have to fill in because there was a a lack of staff if you like certainly a lack of experience and we were all learning on the job um 
and yeah, it probably showed a bit. It might have been a little bit rough around the edges in those early days, but um, it was it was an extraordinary thing to be a part of in in those uh, opening years of the of the Premier League. I did the first six seasons as the as the live uh, pitch side reporter before moving on to to sports news. But um, yeah, incredible times. But I never thought it would become the global um, event that it is now. Yes, even in those early years, we were seeing the likes of David Ginola, who, who was on Sky Sports yesterday, making an impact. And of course, Eric Cantona was the, the, the first one, if you like. And, and it was great to see that happen. But I never realised just how global the Premier League would go on to become. Um, I always thought it would be successful because the product essentially is fantastic. It is the league you want to watch if you want to see games that go to the last minute time after time after time. And uh, that's part of the reason why it's successful, plus uh, incredible production values that are are given to it now. Um, It's evolved very much off the pitch as well as on it over these last 25 to uh, 30 years. And uh, I'm very proud to to have been a a part of it in those early days. Yeah, well, like you said, you were, you know, you were an integral part of it. And actually, you were just talking a bit um, beforehand about, you know, being that kind of pitch side tunnel reporter. And that was actually something we were interested in, sort of, could you quickly, I mean, you've already said that there there was a lot to do, but what was, um, what was the general match day experience in those early years as a live tunnel reporter? What would, what would be, I mean, you said there was a lot of things, but yeah, what, could you give us some examples of the sort of things you'd be having to do? Well, I, I mean, there used to be a two-hour build-up in those days, believe it or not. So we would come on air at two o'clock for the four o'clock Super Sunday kickoff, and you had to really do a bit of anything and everything. So I would have to talk to the groundsman about the pitch, find out exactly what was going on there. You'd have to make sure you looked at the match day program to see if there's any particular uh, stories that might be worth pursuing there. You'd be talking, you'd be doing box pop with both sets of fans beforehand as well. Uh, in those days, you actually didn't get to interview the managers beforehand. Uh, you'd always have to go up separately during the week to interview them. Um, and so that that's something that's certainly um, changed. I mean, obviously, they did interviews after the game. But you know what? In that first season or so, it was usually only winning or drawing managers that we ever got to speak to. If, if a manager lost, you'd, you'd go up to them and say, look, is there any chance you might do an interview with this? And they would more often than not say, no, no chance whatsoever and storm off. Now, of course, there's contracts in place. You can't do that kind of stuff. But I mean, when there were some really good guys in those early days, the likes of Joe Royal and Lenny Lawrence. Now, they would they, they would do an interview, win, lose or draw because they like to be a part of it. But, but a lot of them were a bit sensitive to the fact that if you remember, Back then, you didn't really see too many beaten managers being interviewed on TV, probably after a cup final or something like that. Um, but so that did change, but it took a bit of, it took a bit of time. Um, we used to film all sorts of behind the scenes features as well. Um, and so we were often in boardrooms um, and doing little histories or pieces about a particular supporter or, or a former player. So th- there was an awful lot that sort of went into it. You're, you'd be up there the night before more often than not if, it, if, if the, the game was more than 100 miles away from your house and you'd be on, on um, site so early. It was a, a long, long days, many, many miles, um, but uh, hugely, hugely uh, exciting. I, I think my, um, I used to have an old Rover in those days and the first two years of the Premiership, it went from having 8,000 on it to 132,000 in two seasons. So fair bit of fair bit of up and down the country in those days. Making me think of my current car that's getting towards 200,000 miles over oh, here. Well, that's, that's yeah, good. I've got to take it easy. But um, yeah, you reminded me of, uh, you mentioned now of the contractual obligation. I think it was different reasons beyond them sometimes losing games, but we can all remember, was it Mike Phelan sort of feel it, filling in for... Um, Sir Alex for all those years he obviously didn't want to do those interviews like I said for different reasons but sticking with this line of questioning about the live stadium reporting the touchline reporting what are maybe some pressures or obstacles in that role that you had to overcome early on I know you mentioned it was sort of um jack of all trades having to kind of learn on the job as well um but what were your sort of greatest strengths what what made you a good touchline reporter well I think one of the things that you had to learn early on is that although it's exciting for you, and and yes, there's a bit of adrenaline running 
through through your veins as you're getting ready for a live post-match interview it's it's off the wall for the for the winners and the losers and you have to understand that things do get said and done in the heat of the moment which perhaps might surprise you or you might think people are being unreasonable it's learning to try and stay completely calm and objective and it's not always easy um you, you're kind of obviously brought up as a journalist to be as objective as, as possible but certainly in those early days when you're in that tunnel environment which was which was a new one i'm not a former player or anything like that so um i was very mindful of, of uh having to sort of tread a little bit carefully especially in those early days and, and and not push people too hard with with sir alex you always knew you'd get one question that maybe he wouldn't like but you'd see it in his eyes and he would probably answer it fairly brusquely if you went for the follow-up i did it once i'd never do it again because it's just not worth it um and after that you'd learn to around the issues a little and you'd draw a bit more information out of him but you he was he and Kenny Dalgleish certainly made me realize that there was an awful lot to this tunnel uh interviewing um job because you did have to really be on your toes when when you were interviewing those two I have to say away from that scenario they've both been great to me and, I, and I've had many chats with them but they they certainly didn't give you a free ride down in the tunnel and you you had to be absolutely all bases covered and expecting the unexpected as well from them. Yeah, two absolute legends of the game. And I guess speaking of another one, there's probably no point asking Arsene Wenger if he saw the penalty incident, because we all know that he, he didn't. So that's one question you can kind of forget about going into an interview with him. But uh, after the touchline reporting, you would earn a change in your role at Sky Sports to become chief football reporter. Um, so how did your responsibilities change and sort of grow along with that? And then was that a position you'd been working towards for a long time or did it just happen to be a good opportunity in the moment well it was more it was an opportunity and that um 1998 was was the year that sky decided to um set up a a rolling new sports channel they, it was going to be 24 hours and although it ran 24 hours for, for six or eight hours it was pre-recorded through the night um and i was asked if i'd like to be a part of it as as the chief football reporter and i absolutely thought this is a, a, a great opportunity um it it meant that i would also continue to be uh, england reporter which has been a very important part of, of my career um so it, it was a no-brainer but it again it was a huge learning curve because it's one thing to be working in live TV on, on outside broadcasts that happen once, twice, maybe three times a week. Rolling news is a relentless animal um, and you have to keep updating stories. You're, you're, you're never off duty in a sense. So, uh, again, there was an awful lot to learn. And um, I'm, I was indebted in those early days to uh, a guy called Ian Woods, who for many, many years was um, Sky News's well, sports reporter. He's been their American reporter, their European reporter, general news reporter. He showed me the ropes in the early days, just what it was like having to deal with, with live TV and, and how you update things and always try and look for different angles. So, uh, yeah, it, it, a terrific time again, but uh, it, it was um, hard in those early days. I won't pretend otherwise. Oh, no, no doubt at all. I'm sure it was challenging, but exciting as well. And obviously, look, you, um, you'd had all that experience working in the Premier League before you were the chief football reporter. But then, of course, through that job as well, the Champions League and the England national side would become things that you would be covering for a number of years. And of course, as a result, you, I'm sure you have a lot of opinions and knowledge about it. So we're going we're gonna to ask you about all of those things. We'll, we'll start with um, the Premier League, which I know we've talked about a bit already. But look, as you've already said now, um, the Premier League is a is a global product. There's no um, there's no doubt about that. And look, the the TV money seems to grow and grow and grow, and it seems to get bigger and bigger. But I guess looking to the future for the Premier League, what 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 do you think is the is the biggest challenge it's got to overcome? Is it is it the threat of these super leagues? Obviously, we saw that earlier this year. Or is there is there anything else that you think could sort of pose a threat to the to the future of the Premier League as it is now? I think I think the Super League is is something that isn't going to go away. I think it may come back in a slightly different form at some stage in the not too distant future. There may be a different outcome the next time around. Um, 
In terms of other threats to it, well, I, I mean, the people have often said, oh, the Premier League are pricing itself out of existence. But that's one thing that seems to be clear. It's all about supply and demand and market forces. And you don't see any sense that suddenly um, the bigger companies won't be able to afford the astronomical sums for, for the live contracts. And so I do believe that will continue to get stronger and stronger. And, and I think it'll continue to um, flourish around the world as well. Um, but I, I would say, so I don't, I don't see there being a threat from a commercial point of view, but I, I do sense that uh, there may be people looking on a little enviously thinking we'd like a slice of this action. And maybe if we can all get together and we can turn it into a European league. Um, they ha uh, the, some of the other European countries have leagues that are good. Some are very good, but none are as, as compelling as the, as the Premier League. And, and there can be no doubt that if there was to be a Super League, it would water down the Premier League. And, and I think that's where the battleground, if you like, will be over the next decade. Well, talking about you know, other leagues throughout Europe. Um, the Champions League, of course, is an, another competition that you would have covered um, during your time. And so, and probably still still today, potentially. But um, as far as your experiences of reporting on, you know, those games featuring clubs from all over Europe, I would imagine that sort of the media presence was typically more of an international scene than you might see at your average Premier League game. So I'm kind of curious to know if you observed much of that and maybe in what ways you might have noticed any differences between their ways of doing things and, and kind of the English way that you would have been used to at Sky, maybe in their energy levels or the production style. But yeah, at any point, um, kind of when you were in those stadiums and, and seeing these other teams putting their content together, did you notice a big difference or is production around sports pretty sort of standard globally? Well, yes and no. It is it is standard to a degree, but I, I certainly noticed a, a, a lot of differences when you went to the large European clubs. I mean, I know uh, over here in, in England you get looked after very well at the at the top Premier League clubs, but not so much a little lower down because they don't have the resources, if you like, or the inclination. Who knows? But but certainly, if you went to the likes of Real Madrid, Barcelona, or or Bayern München, then then you, you did feel you were a real part of the action and uh, an important member of it. Maybe that was UEFA that actually gave you that impression rather than the individual clubs themselves, because they certainly seem to put themselves out um, to make the reporting experience as good as it possibly could be and, and to help you do your job um, with increased access to, to the areas that you needed to be. Um, and you, you were badged up. To, to the to the eyeballs as it were but as a result you could get anywhere without being challenged so that that was certainly a bit of an insight i mean the the uh, mix zone we would obviously experience mix zones at uh, cup finals and, and things like that but it was a, a regular uh, place for um, the champions league games uh, to to end up so you might start in the area where the live interviews are being conducted and then certainly this was my experience with sports news you you do the you do the interviews for the uh, live programming on Sky Sports and then you'd switch into the mix zone, which was a bit of a, a sort of a scramble and a, a rough and tumble. And I have ended up on the floor um, on one occasion and the um, French radio reporter, his face, I, I still remember, I'm looking to uh, even the score up one day, although I've never come across him since. But yeah, he knocked me to the ground during uh, at the end of the Monaco-Chelsea semi-final. Um, <laughs> which was extraordinary, but there we go. Um, but yes, you, you, you then do some work in, in, in the mix zone. So, um, but the whole thing, what uh, really struck me about the Champions League was how it was made to be an amazing occasion. Um, and I, it still is. I don't do the Champions League now. I, I haven't since uh, for about five years, but uh, very fond memories of it. Um, my favourite memory... I think because of all the near misses and the games that I covered where it didn't quite work for them would be Munich in 2012 when Chelsea finally got over the line on penalties and won their first Champions League. I was sat right behind the goal and I mean right behind it. I could almost touch the back of the net where Didier Drogba scored the, the, the winning penalty. Um, and uh, yes, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary night. And if ever somebody's name was written on the cup, then 
that's probably the best example I've ever seen of it. But uh, yeah, um, the Champions League, long may it continue and flourish, a, a, a wonderful competition, especially uh, in the later stages. Um, I get where why people are a little critical of the group stages. I think there can be a few dead rubbers and games that don't mean too much. And maybe if there was a way of slimming it down slightly to make it more exciting, I'd, I'd certainly vote for that. But um, once it gets into the knockout stages, it's absolutely compelling. I think, Joe, we might have watched that Chelsea-Bayern Munich final together, possibly back in the day, if I'm not, if I'm not yeah, remembering it correctly. I, I have less fun memories of it, I think. We'll oh, yeah, because Spurs make the top for me. Yeah, because of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And Nick, I was going to say, Joe and I don't do the Champions League anymore either as Arsenal and Spurs fans, respectively. So, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but again, drawing on your uh, exposure to European and other international uh, media outlets, this is a bit more of, I guess, a general question, um, your perspective on it, if, you, if you've got an opinion. But how do they compare to the English media's agenda towards reporting on Fitch football, which Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I find to be typically quite negative. Uh, are we alone as a nation in sort of piling that pressure and stoking up drama around our, you know, respective domestic players and clubs? Or, or is that just good sort of reporting and good selling of a story anywhere? Well, I mean, yeah, I take your point. Um, I think there has been a long tradition of building people up to knock them down again, if you like. And, and I guess that still continues. What I would say from observing it over a number of years is that the, um, the continental approach does seem to be really thorough. Um, and it is critical, but it's critical on a level about um, the football and decisions that are made and technical issues. We seem to look more for the human side, um, those kind of stories. And, and that's where I'd say we differ. Whether you'd say we are putting more pressure on people or not, I don't know. Our idea of, of a story and theirs, I think, is a little different. I, I, I think because they have these sports papers that need vast number of words to, to fill, um, you, you do feel that uh, they go into infinite detail about footballing issues, whereas we kind of, yes, well, we don't skip over that at all, but we're looking for the, the human interest, uh, the people behind the stories. And yes, the pressure building up and then coming off again, it's, it's a, a never-ending story, but it's a good one. Um, and uh, yes, it sells papers, it makes people listen to radio stations and watch TV, so why not? But yeah, there is a difference that way, for sure. Oh, that's, that's interesting, really. Yeah, you're right. The human side of footballers is very much um, a part of the kind of... Um, the, the discourse here in this country it's interesting to hear from maybe it's not quite the same in yeah more European countries but um let's talk a bit about England as well and look I know that um over the years you worked at Sky you know you reported on numerous training camps and you would have interviewed loads of players and managers and I know even actually in your quite a nice moment in your final um press conference you were given a standing ovation um, which would, must have been, you know, I'm sure for yourself, uh, quite an emotional moment. But I guess um, given that you were, you clearly um, gained the respect of people within that England camp and presumably had a good relationship with them, what, what do you think it was about the way you approached working with the England national team that kind of built up that respect and trust? Well, I think it became pretty clear uh, early in my career of covering England, that you had to take the long-term approach. Um, you couldn't always get the interview you wanted at the time. Um, there is an awful lot of news management that goes on, can we put it that way, as well as media officers. There's, there's kind of, we used to call some people media prevention officers rather than media officers. And I'm sure you'll know what I mean. And I'm not saying that was prevalent around England necessarily at any given time. And, and certainly these days, it's, it's a much healthier um, relationship between the, the media and, and the England football team. Um, I, I think there were times, certainly back in the 90s and early 2000s, where the players were, were a bit suspicious uh, of the media, all forms, and, and you were very much trying to sort of hold out an olive branch. Um, but it did work because you gradually, um, your face becomes more and more familiar. And, and a lot of it is that every, if you're at every training camp, you're at every press conference, obviously you get to know the managers, you get to know the players, you know the players anyway, a bit from the 
Premier League. But funnily enough, in a way, you get to know the much better on England duty than you do um, in the Premier League because they are allocated specific times for interviews and you'd, you'd find you could get into it in a bit more depth with them. So, And you're there, you're, you're, you're in the tunnel, win, lose or draw, you're in the mix zone, you're, you're around, the players sitting in their hotels waiting for the game, passing the time, got the TV on and there you are on the touchline six hours before kickoff uh, previewing the game. So yes, you know, they, they, you become a familiar face and, um, you know, it, it's it's one of those things that as a result, it, it becomes easier. The players trust you. You have to earn that trust. Um, but I feel I did. And look, I'm a massive England fan. I make no bones about it. I am. I'll always try and be objective. But it, it's, you know, in England... Winning something would be would be the ultimate for me. I don't know that I'll ever see that from a professional point of view, but I'd, I'd uh, certainly hope to be there if, if it does happen. If it does happen, it yeah it might at the minute look like it'll it's going to happen either sooner or much much later potentially because we've got I know every generation seems to be the golden generation, but we've gotten so close the last couple of tournaments, and the next tournament is you know only only a year away, so we'll see how how we get on in in Qatar. Um, otherwise, we're gonna just before we get on to what you're up to these days, Nick, have a few sort of quick fire questions for you that hopefully will, will be quite nostalgic. So we'll fly through these. And for the first question, uh, we'll see how far back we end up going. I'd imagine it relates to your time pre-Sky, possibly while you're at Aldershot News, but we'll see. So question number one is, what was your first ever interview? Um, from a, a footballing point of view, it would have been uh, Len Walker, the Aldershot manager, um, back in the day in the uh, early 80s. Um, the first interview I ever conducted was actually uh, with an MP who was a cabinet minister called David Howell, who was the uh, MP for Guildford, um, who, because he'd been a journalist himself, granted me an interview during one of his uh, Friday evening surgeries, and I was able to use that interview as a basis for an application which got me the job on the Aldershot News so he would be the first ever interview <laughs> but the first interview um was, was Len Walker yeah uh, I used to go and see him in his office on a on a Thursday ahead of the Saturday game um and um sometimes on a on a Wednesday or a Friday depending on on, on what suited but yes um I, I used to um do the uh, post-match with him sometimes on the bus coming home from away games if it was all a bit too frantic in the tunnel at, at the end of a match and emotions were running high, I'd just give him a nod and he'd say, I'll like, see you on the bus. And so coming back down the M1 or whatever, we'd, we'd actually do the interview. It was a bi-weekly paper, so I didn't have the kind of deadlines that I had to get used to later in my career. <laughs> sure, there were some very interesting conversations on those journeys on the M1. But um, our next question, Nick, is um, what was your favourite Premier League season to cover? Okay, well, I think um, it, it, it's a really, it's a close one between 95 when Blackburn won it, because that was amazing. Um, it was somebody new winning the Premier League. It was somebody new winning the top flight. They hadn't won it for goodness knows, it was about 80 years or something like that, maybe longer. I can't remember now. Um, but that was uh, an extraordinary season. The end with the dramas at Upton Park, um, with Manchester United not quite able to force a winner against West Ham, despite dominating that game. And, and Blackburn, who'd started off leading at Liverpool and everything seemed fine, then suddenly found themselves losing in stoppage time, but barely had one goal gone in, then a, a final whistle blew elsewhere, and they went from misery to ecstasy in the space of a few seconds. That 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 left a, uh, a big mark on me. And, and being in the dressing room afterwards, um, interviewing the players, getting absolutely pelted with shirts, boots, champagne, you name it, um, in the dressing room while interviewing the players um, after the game. But it was fantastic, fantastic times up there. They were a really good bunch of of, of people, the, the, the players at, at Blackburn that won that league title. Um, but I'm also going to mention one other one, and it ended with the team that perhaps everybody wanting to win it, not winning it, and that's Newcastle, the year of the, the famous collapse from being 12 points clear in January. And... The, the, the entertainers, they were magnificent. It was just extraordinary to see this team that seemed to be on an even bigger journey than Blackburn uh, going about winning the, the Premier League and then watching the, the absolute ultimate experts in how to win in Manchester United and Eric Cantona getting over the line instead and going on to win. And uh, yes, there was the, I'd love it 
Kevin Keegan interview and, and all, all that that goes with it. But um, yeah, those those two seasons back to back were were absolutely uh, memorable from my point of view. We had the pleasure of speaking to Warren Barton on the podcast about about that season, and he and the the rest of his teammates, from the sound of things, took it pretty pretty hard. They were very disappointed in not being able to get over the line, as you can imagine. And then, what a special moment to be part of with the the Blackburn players in the the dressing room after they did win the Premier League. Obviously, they've come a long way in the opposite direction under sort of like the more recent Venkies ownership period hopefully they'll be back in the premier league sooner rather than later but we've got a few more of these and uh, this is going to be quite a sky specific um question in particular because it's the the day or i guess twice a year it happens um we're talking about transfer deadline day of course something that yeah sky has turned into those two days of the year that everyone's looking forward to for the entertainment beyond just transfers that in and out of their club so from your memory, what was a particularly crazy or maybe the craziest deadline day that you worked on? Oh, gosh, now you're putting me on the spot. I mean, there, there, there were quite a few. I suppose it ultimately depends on, on the role you, you you had. I mean, I've, I've taken the role of being down there first thing in the morning, uh, doing the, 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 the late shift when it all goes crazy. But uh, I, su- I suppose it's when surprises happen. I mean, I, I, I know that everyone would angle to try and be doing the club that Harry Redknapp was managing on transfer deadline day, because hey, uh, you'd nearly always get a story and you'd also get a bacon roll and a cup of tea because he more often than not invite you inside because he seemed to appreciate uh, how, how difficult uh, it, it can be down there. Um, it, it's changed over the years in that we used to be outside places hanging around and then we kind of found ourselves in the firing line a bit. Um, and uh, although it made a made it a little bit entertaining for the viewers it did get difficult for um for, for the uh, cameramen and reporters down there and so we ended up inside grounds where there was perhaps less of an atmosphere I, I i can't sort of pin down any particular one but i just loved the ones where it built to a crescendo and you were watching i, I must admit I, I don't think i ever had one that was extraordinary um because you you were allocated a club and Sometimes they did nothing on a day and you'd end up back in the office in the studio late at night watching it it, it, it all unfold. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's become an institution. Um, it was a lot of work went into the, the thinking about it. Um, the clubs were pretty reluctant to um, take part in it in the early years. Um, but now they're used to what goes on. They know what happens as a more structured approach. And um yeah, some some deadlines are, are fairly straightforward. Others are, are, are very dramatic. The more dramatic, the better, really. But in recent years, I'd suggest there haven't been quite so many dramatic ones because clubs very well organised. They've got teams of of people that are dedicated to identifying talent and bringing it into the club. It wasn't just a manager who'd rush off the training ground on deadline day and then try and set up a deal which would get over the line at eleven o'clock at night there tends to be a scenario where the specific targets that are tracked and and secured if they can well before the deadline day although of course that does change if if a club suddenly hits a bad run of form or a bad run of injuries and then suddenly they're looking for last minute replacements and that's when you do sometimes get a bit of last minute drama but amazing thing to take part in um but i don't miss it i'll tell you that i'd much rather sit and watch it from uh, the comfort of my armchair (laughs) <laughs> very nice indeed and I guess these days you have people on Twitter like Fabrizio Romano kind of breaking the stories probably sometimes before Sky even get their hands on them so it's, it, it, things are changing but um, the next question is what what was the most um, challenging ground to sort of be a touchline reporter at was there maybe one where you'd get the most stick from fans or just logistically it was tricky was there one where if you had a match and you're working there you knew you were in for a, a tough day um, I, I don't know. I suppose that there's, there's some grounds that were, were certainly very tight. In the early days at, at Goodison, it used to be quite tricky setting up to, to do interviews anywhere because the, the area was so small, the tunnel, as you know, is, 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 is long and thin. Um, and other other grounds, you, you can be a little further away from the action than you'd like to be because they would insist that you don't come 
out of the where you're sitting and go through the tunnel um, at the end of a game to do interviews. They'd make you go around the back and through stands and things like that. And you had to make sure you got your timing right to, to, to make sure you were in place in time. But um, no, I mean, over the years, um, the clubs got more and more used to, to live TV. It, it, it was a challenge mainly in the early years because, you know, clubs, look, Sheffield Wednesday, Norwich, clubs like that, they didn't have sort of live games um, as a regular thing until in, until that year. So it, it was very much a case of having to sort of work your way around what clubs had in place for this kind of thing. So um, that, that was often a challenge, but um, I wouldn't, there was never a ground I'd go, oh gosh, it's going to be a tough night because we're here. Uh, unless it's say something like Oldham and the weather is absolutely appalling or something like that. But um, uh, in, in, in fact, the coldest I ever was at a Premier League ground in all the years I covered it was on the South Coast, Southampton, minus 10 one night down there, believe it or not, in the 90s. And that's as cold as I've ever been at a football match. And I've done them in northern Norway and all over the world. And in Southampton on the south coast of England was the coldest place I ever got to. I, I certainly miss the football culture and being able to make it to, to Arsenal games because I still have my season tickets, but I don't miss the weather. That's That's for sure. Um, we've got a couple more of these um, before we move on. And what was the most difficult, possibly maybe most emotional story um, game or, or incident that you've had to report on? Well, um, one of the things that I, I do remember very much was the um, terrorism attack in Paris. Um, while England were out, we we were playing out in uh, Alicante, um, uh, a friendly against Spain, when news started trickling through about what had happened in, in Paris and France. We were meant to be playing Germany and uh, the Germans ended up spending the night in the stadium and the, the, the stories was cu were coming through and the death toll was rising and rising. And of course, everyone was aware that France and England were meant to be playing in just a few days' time and, and, and wondering whether it would happen. But watching the response of both nations and how Wembley conducted itself on, on the day and how the two sets of players got together um, was absolutely magnificent. And, and yes, it, it, was, it was very emotional, but it, it, in, in the right kind of way. That, that, that's something that, that stood out a lot. Another from England days, which wasn't quite such a pleasant memory, would have been... Uh, the riot in Dublin um, in 95, um, when um, certain sections of the England fans obviously ripped up the seating and threw it down, caused the game to be abandoned. And uh, I remember that when the dust had settled there and we charged around and done as much as we could, when we left the ground, we were told um, our bus was 200 yards away to take us to the airport, um, but that we should take off our sky coats as it identified us as being English and that your safety couldn't be guaranteed if if people out there thought you were English. So we, I remember we all took our coats off and walked sheepishly towards the the, uh, the coach that took us to the airport and I think we we're all pretty relieved to, to get out of there but that was that was a, a, a nasty evening. Um, but you know, um, yeah, emotion in football goes goes hand in hand on and, and, and many occasions. But um, as I say, the, 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 the England-France game after the uh, atrocities in Paris is, is something that sticks very much in my mind. Yes, no, that must have been a very, very difficult time to be reporting on, on events. Um, and we do have, I guess, slightly different um, from that question. We've got one last question. This is a bit more of a lighthearted one. But at the end of... Um, your reports you'd always do on Sky Sports, not just you, but all the other reporters, Nick, there would always be a thing where you'd say your name and then Sky Sports. So we just wondered, would that would you practice your delivery when you'd go for the, the Nick Collins Sky Sports? Or would that be something that would just kind of, you'd, you'd um, I don't know, just you wouldn't even think about it? Because I don't know, that's something I, tell, I always have remembered as a, a bit of a thing. On well, Sports. yeah, I mean, I suppose in the very early days, you probably did. I, I, I don't really remember practicing it, but I do know we used to have a bit of fun with um, David Craig because we always felt that he was forever trying to practice his sign off because <laughs> it's going to be different occasionally from time to time. Um, but um, I suppose if, if, if one thing I'm remembered for at Sky Sports it will always be for the Scotland game in 2013 and standing outside Wembley and falling off that platform <laughs> live on TV. I thought I'd get that in before you mention it. Um, <laughs> be 
been stopped all over the world. It's been it, it's been on YouTube, and it's it's had goodness knows how many million hits on on, on YouTube. But listen, it still raises a chuckle. Um, I was at a golf day the other day, and the people behind me uh, playing, I knew them, and 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 they knew me, and they suddenly started laughing and. I said, well, what's going on? And they said, oh, one of these guys didn't know about what had happened to you at Wembley, and so we were showing it to him. And of course, yeah, it's it brings a laugh. Look, there's an awful lot of things you could be known for which aren't as funny or as, as nice as that. And I mean, what I would say is that night, I've never had uh, found it so easy to interview England players. They literally queued up to come and speak to me because they all wanted to know about what had happened. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it was funny. It could have been serious, but it wasn't. And that's what makes it funny. No, nobody, nothing got hurt apart from my pride. Um, and uh, as I say, I've, I've kind of dined out on that over the years. So um, uh, even after it happened, within a few seconds, some Scotland fans walked past and they'd already seen it. Um, it had gone viral on uh, on uh, YouTube or, or, or perhaps a, a social media site as well. But yeah, that's uh, that's something that I, I I have to live with, but I do so uh, gratefully. And um, the uh, the Sun did a piece on it with the going going gone series of photographs of me, and the headline I thought was brilliant. It just said Skyfall, and it was just when the Bond film Skyfall was out. Um, so yeah. Very good. And uh, something you look back on um, with amusement because there's so many things you could have been remembered for, but I guess that's the one that, that will, will will stick in most people's mind. But I'm happy with that. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was an iconic moment, Nick. And like you said, fortunately, you nothing serious came of it. So it's nice that you can look back on it fondly, much um, like so many football fans do. And what, a, what an iconic moment. But we've got um, we just got a couple more questions for you, a bit more about what you're up to these days. So um, obviously, I know you left Sky back in 2016, and now you, you're sort of involved in freelance football productions. So how um, how does it... I guess what 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 is it you're up to these days from a kind of football production standpoint, and how how does it compare to what you were doing at Sky? Well, um, since the pandemic, it's it's uh, changed a bit. I was do, doing a fair bit for Premier League productions, a lot less now. I'm concentrating my efforts on 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 writing a, a, another book, a follow up to uh, Foot Soldiers, um, and I'm about fifty thousand words into that. So that's that's my um, uh, project that I'm working on uh, over the next few months, um, as well as doing uh, a few games when I get the chance, and of course getting down to Priestfield to watch the mighty Jills struggle through in League One, while you guys watch the Premier League with your teams. But um, no, I still I still get to uh, Premier League games whenever I can, um, and it's nice not to have the day to day grind around the M25. I, d- I certainly don't miss that. Um, but yes, I, I hope that I can get um, the, the follow-up to Foot Soldiers uh, finished and, and published and uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. But uh, I mean, I, I certainly hope to continue in some capacity in, in football, whatever that may be, over the, over the next few years. Well, one more question for you, Nick, and on the books. Um, good to hear that you're writing a third book, I guess that would be for you, because you've done 50 Cup Finals, which was a bit of a biography yeah. about your life in football. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Foot Soldiers, about the, the Royal Engineers football team. On the writing process, I guess you kind of, because you'd at the beginning been talking about a bit more sort of print and, and writing before your time at Sky, so maybe it kind of came full circle. But in terms of the communication skills that you had built up from years of presenting, interviewing, reporting. When it came to the storytelling in, in writing for books, did you find that that method or, or means of communication was pretty transferable and, and helped you out? Or did you kind of have to start from um, from square one and, and, and work on the writing and, and really sort of forge out yes. a new strength? Yeah, certainly, certainly had to work on the writing um, because uh, the writing in TV very different to obviously writing in newspapers or or if you're, if you're writing a book. I mean, I enjoyed the the, the process hugely, but yes, it, it, it took a bit of getting used to. Um, and obviously, it's one thing to write a, a memoir, and then it's completely another to to write a novel with a lot of conversation and dialogue in it. And and working on those. Um, I found fascinating, difficult, but but ultimately, um, I, I I hope it, it, it worked. Um, and 
Yeah, I suppose you could say it's come full circle. I started as a as a writer, and um, I'm still writing now. But um, uh, I, I haven't given up on the broadcasting side yet either. So I'd hope to still be doing uh, one or two things in the near future. Fantastic. Well, we I mean we hope to see you back on the screen as soon as possible. But um, that's actually. Um, all we've got time for today so firstly I want to say a big thank you to my co-host Kaitel and then of course an extra special thank you um, from the both of us to Nick for joining us and we've really enjoyed um, chatting to you and look, <laughs> wishing you all the best and also wishing you all the best for Gillingham and um, I hope, I hope they, um, they can move up the table in League One but um, I don't know if you have any social media accounts but I don't know Nick if, if you have any sort of final words for our listeners before we um, sign off today. Well, listen, I'd just like to say, uh, Joel Keitel, really, really enjoyed it. It's a great trip down memory lane and also to talk about some of today's issues as well. Um, it just shows that, you know, football is a, is a great game to have a chat about, whether you're in a studio, whether you're uh, doing this kind of Zoom conference, whether you're in a pub with a pint in hand. It's just a great game to talk about. I know people go on about it's a game of opinions. It's a game far more than that. And it's it's nice to hear from other people, other experiences. I mean, my family is completely split down the middle with Arsenal and Tottenham fans as well. Um, I'm the odd one out. So um, I had to keep my head down because uh, we, we don't normally uh, move in those rarefied circles. But yeah, no, it's it, it really, really good fun this evening. And yeah, to, the message would be to the fans, now that we're back in the stadiums, just get out there and go and watch the football as much as you can. Give your team support as positively as you can. And um, let's hope that some of the nonsense that we've seen in stadiums lately um, is, is going to quickly become a thing of the past because uh, football doesn't need that. It's, it's much too great a game to have to uh, put up with that. But uh, I mean, even today, just to bring the, the, the wheel full circle, England have been um, banned uh, from having fans in, in the ground for their first um, uh, European Nations League qualifier next June as a result of what happened at the Euro 2020 finals this summer. So um, it's, it's, it's certainly something that uh, football is going to have to keep an eye on. But let's hope the, uh, they do and that uh, the experience of the fans continues to be something that, that's important and, and wonderful. We, we all love going to games. Let's hope we can continue doing that. Yeah, very well put. Hopefully that's rock bottom and the only way is up from there in terms of fans behaving themselves and sanctions um, preventing them from, from, from attending these games. Um, but yeah, up the Jills. Thanks again, Nick. An absolute honor and an absolute pleasure to, to chat with you on the podcast. Much, much appreciated. Um, as far as our listeners, if you enjoyed this interview, please do follow us wherever you like to stream your podcasts. Um, you can find us, just look for United Mates Football Podcast, wherever it is. Uh, same thing on YouTube, United Mates Football Podcast. If you feel like putting some faces to these voices, uh, please subscribe if you can while you're at it. On Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we are at United Mates FP. And for all of that content and more in one place, just visit the website. That's unitedmatesfp.com. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye. <laughs>